Welcome to the Amy Podcast, produced by the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, in partnership with the studios of Healthcare Tech Talk. Terry Baker. And I'm Kelly Hill. Kelly, one of the hottest topics out there today is big data. Yes. And while I feel like I have an understanding of what big data is, I'm really not clear on how it's used. Right. I've had a little bit of exposure, learned a little bit, but not enough. So I'm really excited that we have some great guests with us today to help expand our knowledge on big data. With that, we do. We have with us Mr. Andrew Curry. Andrew is the Director of Clinical Engineering Services for the Johns Hopkins Hospital and the Howard County General Hospital. He has 24 years of hospital experience as a biomedical technician, clinical engineer, and director of a hospital-based clinical engineering department. In addition to clinical engineering duties, Andrew has completed various roles for Amy, such as the annual conference track co-chair, conference co-chair, and presented various webinars. Andrew received a B.S. in Engineering Science from the Georgia Institute of Technology and an M.S. from Johns Hopkins University. Joining Andrew also, we have Mr. John Chang. John is a Johns Hopkins Hospital clinical engineer and Oracle database programmer who oversees a collection of the Johns Hopkins alarm data. Finally, we have Professor Carolyn McGregor. Carolyn is the Canada Research Chair in Health Informatics at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, Canada. Dr. McGregor has led pioneering research in big data, analytics, event stream processing, temporal data stream data mining, business process modeling, patient journey modeling, and cloud computing. Dr. McGregor established and leads the Artemis Project, a big data solution for neonatal intensive care to demonstrate new data intensive solutions for multiple conditions. Her new Athena project applies and extends this neonatal research for new approaches within the context of critical care medicine, mental health, astronaut health, and military and civilian tactical training. Dr. McGregor has been awarded over $10 million in research, consultancy, and infrastructure funding. She has led the establishment of two IT startup companies internationally and has published over 130 research publications and seven patents internationally. She is regularly called upon by the media as an international specialist in health informatics and big data. Welcome to the show, all of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a definition. Carolyn, what are we talking about when we refer to big data in healthcare? There are a couple of different definitions, but the one that I want to focus on today for my definition of big data is data that has volume velocity and variety, and most of that means that it comes from sensors. So it's regularly emitting signals that have a certain velocity over time. It has large volumes of data, so for example, an electrocardiogram, a 1,000 readings a second, and so you have volume of a large number of patients, velocity and variety. Um, We can have a number of different sensors emitting that type of data. Sometimes people think that genomic sequencing is big data. That data doesn't change, Uh, Mm -hmm. so I don't class it as big data. It's certainly large, very large data, but it's not what I refer to as big data. Okay. 
Andrew, do you have any kind of perspective on that or anything you'd like to add to that definition? No, I think that's a good definition. It's a, it's a very all-encompassing definition and can be applied to a variety of different industries. But I think the, the goals are the same, really, to, to gather value from all this data sure. and make sense of it, Sure. apply to our business plan. Now, the potential of big data to transform healthcare seems considerable, as you kind of alluded to, Andrew. We have more medical devices than ever that collect and store information, and increasingly these devices are connected to one another and to IT systems. So how can all this data improve quality and efficiency when it comes to healthcare? Can you give me some specific examples of what could be accomplished? Well, I think if we can standardize the data exchange, the protocol, and get access to it without too much work, I think it, it could really unlock a lot of uh, success for our, for our companies and for the industry in general. Uh, one example we work on is alarm management, and we, we focus only on the physiological monitoring devices. We're not getting data from all the different variety of data, just one type of network device that using some middleware software, we're able to quantify and describe alarms that are occurring with just this one fleet of equipment. And, and we've been able to really change some of our workflow and practices and patient safety activities around this data. You know, our, our quality improvement is really driven by this data that we supply to clinicians every seven days. And, uh, and so that's our one example. We, we garner, at, at a minimum, 50,000 data records a day. And uh, we, we can't even store it all. We have wow. to roll it off after about 30 days. But uh, within that window, we can see what's going on. And if any of our um, quality improvement changes are really having any effect, we are measured with the, with the output. Carolyn, do you have some perspective you'd like to add? Sure. I want to um, give a little bit of an analogy initially from to, speaking about infection. And I want to speak about it as a mother with a child and then take that into the neonatal intensive care unit. So if my children are not feeling well and they have a temperature and they're obviously dealing with some form of infection, I don't just check on them hourly. I will keep an eye on their temperature. I'll give them medication. I'll monitor that that medication is kicking in. But I certainly wouldn't just check in on them very, very sporadically. So if we take that concept now into neonatal intensive care, so a scenario where they're taking care of very premature babies or just babies who are born more than three weeks early, and those babies, particularly the very premature, are very susceptible to get infection. Now, if I was to say to you in that environment that currently they monitor the heart rate and the respiration and the blood oxygen level second by second, but only from the perspective of saying, right in that moment, are those readings life-threatening? And if they're not life-threatening, then I'm not too concerned about it. And then on an hourly basis, I'll write a number that's a summary number into a paper chart or I'll put it into an electronic health record. Now, if I was to tell you that the research is showing that if you monitor somebody's heart rate and you monitor the overall behavior and the reduced variability of that, as an indicator that they're becoming unwell, then you can see that we need to get that data at a much higher frequency. So in my research, we utilize the electrocardiogram, a 1,000 readings a second, 90 million data points a day per baby, and we monitor the beat-to-beat distance of every single heartbeat, 7,000 heartbeats every hour for one baby. And we check and see 
how much they're able to vary that heart rate. Because when they're starting to become unwell, research shows that that beat-to-beat distance starts to become more regular. So we can use that information to watch for infection. And our research is creating a platform to be able to watch for that. Other researchers are also showing that this change in heart rate behaviour can help you to identify infection. What they don't have is a systemic platform to ingest that data, understand from the electronic health record if it's male or female, because the resting heart rates for the two is different, and also to gather information about their gestational age, which we also need for our calculations. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that we can start to add value to the clinical practice of taking care of the babies by giving them tools that allow us to process the speed of data that we have with big data. So what does real-time clinical decision support mean then, Carolyn? Well, real-time clinical support means that we can really start to understand changing trajectories in a patient at a very, very um, low granularity level. So 7,000 heartbeats in the hour, 2,000 breasts, 3,600 blood oxygen readings. That's just too much for a person to try and process and make sense of themselves. But if we allow computing tools to look at that, if we allow them to track when there are sudden falls in heart rate that may or may not cause alarms to be going off on a device, but they could potentially be significant clinically, then we can start to harness and use all the information that the patients are giving us and not just have that momentary glimpse every hour and and not just only use it to make sure are they in a life-threatening situation right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think you both have touched on the fact that you're using big data to impact care pretty, maybe not on the hour, but you're directly impacting the care. I usually think about big data in terms of strategic decision-making, population management. management. It's very interesting that you both are speaking to how you can use that data to impact an individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We have an example as well. We always looked at our alarm data on a seven day period, you know, and we found that, you know, that was, that was frequent for folks, but it was missing really that real time component. And so we developed some analytics and some software that is really crunching the, the alarm data that's occurring every day and comparing it with the average, the last period average to find these, particular patients who have excessive alarms. And, and it really is kind of the 2080 rule. You know, just these few patients really account for the large quantity of alarms. And so we call this our flood report. And it comes out at noon every day and targets the, the clinicians that, hey, these rooms and patients are uh, contributing to excessive alarms and, uh, you know, take a look at it and see what's going on. And so we find that, you know, the, the monitors have been left unmanaged or, or they need to do some customization of the alarm limits to get this patient in a better attitude. And so that, that's kind of where we're going to more real time. We have a pretty sophisticated net notification system so we can get to the primary nurse who's taking care of a patient in a specific area uh, in very fast time. Well, I'll be completely honest. In the organizations that I've worked for, we have not used big data as we're discussing here in a way of, of notifying clinicians and taking care of individual patients in real time. So 
given that, and I've worked for some pretty big organizations, how would each of you rate healthcare today in terms of its ability to effectively utilize big data? I think, unfortunately, in reality, the effective use currently is poor because there aren't the systemic tools that are available to ingest and process to give the meaning to the data. Healthcare certainly for a very long time has been generating big data. I mean, critical care and intensive care units have been around for more than 50 years. Mm -hmm. They have had devices that emit and present data at a high frequency for almost as long as that time period, and yet we haven't had the computing tools to harness, to gather, to process and utilise every piece and allow exploration of the data in ways that we've never had before. And when I started doing work in this area coming from banking and retail, the process of discovery and clinical research was to take a laptop or a computer on a cart, Mm -hmm. wheel it beside the bed space. Now, that's not a systemic solution to gather data from every patient, people in the home, for ambulatory patients. And so what we need are these systemic solutions to help healthcare harness the data. I agree that I think uh, the utilization of big data is really a work in progress in the healthcare industry. Uh, So much of it is proprietary. There's so many specialty devices. The data is hard to get especially from devices that aren't networked. And even when they are networked, they're, they're kept in a kind of proprietary protocol, the data. And so folks don't have access to it. And it's a, it's a real effort to try and get the data first, or it's expensive as well. You have right. to buy a proprietary server from that company. And so it really uh, prevents people from utilizing it. But I, I think it's changing. There's a little bit of change. I mean, infusion pumps are now wireless, and, and there's access to some of the data there. There's mm-hmm. physician order entry systems. There's pharmacy systems. Uh, and getting access to those and integrating those on a larger scale can put the data together from, from medical equipment. Um, you know, medical equipment is coming with servers. Even even uh, patient beds now have a server. So. Uh, I think the, the change is on the horizon that the data needs to be unlocked and available for folks. So, Andrew, it seems as if healthcare technology management or clinical engineering departments have potentially a crucial role to play here. Can you tell us how your department at Johns Hopkins is tackling the big data challenge? Along those lines, what does your department do to help keep patient data safe and secure? Generally, uh, clinical engineers and biomedical technicians are integrators. They bridge different systems, disparate systems, and uh, are quite good at this. I think we need some help from manufacturers. We need to have you know, equipment on a network and being able to understand the data protocol that's being exchanged. And once that's established, you know, we, we can help set that up and get things talking to other things, uh, I think that's the start. And that's, I think, the role, a good role of the biomedical or clinical engineer uh, in the near future with medical equipment. I think uh, in terms of security, we we certainly are very sensitive to patient privacy and and patient data. It's not necessarily our expertise, but we we try to recognize that we don't want to share that on uh, hospital networks that are used for other data, and so that we really look to segregate and separate our data on the medical equipment side from the informational networks. And so that's a a key component, I think, in terms of safety, uh, not getting 
these things network to um, standard computer networks and information networks and hospital backbones that we, we keep it separate. That's the, that's the first level of safety and security. I thought one of the things that's neat, you kind of touched on now infusion pumps are wireless enabled, but there are a lot of other medical devices that may or may not be able to provide data. Is part of this in the procurement role when you, you know, you've got to buy the right equipment on the front end? Yeah, I agree. You know, you have to have a, a negotiating arm, I think, a little bit in this case to try and get standards, try and get vendors talking to other vendors, working together. Um, you know, we, we have an integrated kind of nurse call communication. There's about eight or nine different vendors involved getting alarms and messages from one system through middleware to another system like mobile devices. Uh, and so getting that easier, I, I think, helps you in the long run to support that kind of integrated and complex system. Carolyn, from your perspective, have you seen the industry as a whole and how this kind of interoperability and capability is growing or developing? Oh, definitely. I, and I think your point that was also raised about procurement now and having it as part of the procurement process of how accessible, open, easy is it to get the data out of the environment, both to feed the electronic health record, but also for these high-frequency big data analytic tools to make sense and utilise the data. I mean, there are still some challenges. With, I mean, you mentioned now that the in smart infusion pumps are wireless. Often the hospitals, though, in that scenario, the data is being sent to the manufacturer of the device. It sometimes is harder to make that data accessible within the hospital for them to utilise. It's been certainly some of the things that we have noticed. And there can sometimes be downsampling of the data from the device to through to things like central monitoring. Uh, and so it really does require, uh, there is a, a change that the clinical engineers, biomedical engineers need to now look at, which is that systemic networking infrastructure to support the collection of all of this data and you know, feeding it through the hospital network to places that it now needs to go. We are certainly starting to look at these areas, uh, but we still need to demonstrate clinical value in a lot more of the clinical research studies to show beyond just infection and other applications that there is a clinical relevance and value to the use of the data that can improve outcomes and reduce healthcare costs. Carolyn, earlier you gave an, an excellent example of the interaction um, between uh, the big data collection and clinicians when it comes to the use of that data. But from a position within a university, can you talk a little bit about the um, collaboration that you have with providers and researchers, what kind of projects um, are coming out of that, the data that's being generated and how it's being used? Definitely. So we have an interdisciplinary team working on how to demonstrate value with the use of big data analytics. And the reason it's interdisciplinary is that we have had to go back to biomedical engineering, computer engineering and computer science research to say, well, their current process is to bring in a laptop, put it at the bedside, collect data, do that for a number of patients and analyse it retrospectively. What we want to give them is a tool that provides a couple of things. We need to give them a research platform 
they need to be able to systemically collect and synchronize all of the data together. They need to be able to annotate it. And they need to have that environment as a mechanism for discovery for those who perform clinical research. Then we need to be able to enable that to be used to demonstrate clinical value and create evidence. When we've created that environment and we've already been reporting on that with some of our research and in our collaborations, then what we need to do is demonstrate how we can run these types of algorithms and analytics in real time and deliver that information to the clinician. So we have researchers in my team who are looking at the biomedical engineering and the computing for the establishment of the environment. I have people in the team then from an informatics perspective who look at approaches of how this information can be used for research and also at the bedside. Then I have clinicians who are carrying out research utilising the environment. We have other researchers who look at the user interface and the user engagement with the environment and how we can improve that using all different user interface tools. So it really takes that interdisciplinary approach to create a very new big data analytics solution. Among academics, there's importance placed on statistical significance. Among practitioners, the importance is placed on clinical significance. And there's frequently been a battle of which takes precedence and which is most important. So in that arena, Carolyn, what are you finding in terms of the work that you're doing? Well, I think that we need to demonstrate value in both. I mean, one of the challenges is that if we have an algorithm that we want to present and create, then it has to have relevance and impact at the bedside and it has to improve outcomes. We often compare and discuss whether it's verification or validation with one referring to whether the algorithm is performing exactly as per its specifications, which is more an engineering discipline type impact, and the other referring to whether it can that approach is actually making a difference in the clinical setting in terms of its ability to identify true positives, true negatives, et cetera, et cetera. So we do have that discussion at and uh, it has been interesting to bring an in, interdisciplinary team together to try and work towards a common goal that we need to make a difference to outcomes because a lot of teams don't work that way, particularly if it's just the engineering in isolation. Sometimes there isn't that ability to connect it to an outcome because they're not working with actively with clinicians to get to that outcome. Andrew, do you have any comments about that? Well, practical thing we're trying to do is we're having to replace our physiological monitoring network, our enterprise-wide network. And so we really are paying a lot of attention to a platform that gives researchers access to this data on real time with waveforms and numerics uh, and a process from which they can easily capture that data, analyze it, and come back with you know, new value. So that's an important part of a, any kind of new purchase. I think also, you know, getting hospitals to kind of act together to have leverage with manufacturers and vendors to get the things that they want, the the features that they want, and the standardization that they want so that they can aggregate this data easily without too much expense. Uh, I think that's going to be a helpful tool. As we, we in Hopkins are trying to act more like a health system, getting our six sister hospitals together in purchasing and, uh, you know, trying to synchronize our purchases to get 
a larger purchase and a, and a, and a less expensive uh, product, possibly. Thank you both for that. Thank you. Is there a danger of too much data and too little knowledge? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I do think there is a danger of too much data and not enough knowledge. When we try and present high-frequency data that hasn't had a lot of meaning derived from it and presented at the bedside. One of the things that we really need to use the computing tools for is to find the clinically relevant meaning. So I'll give an example. In our neonatal population, one of the things that the premature babies are susceptible to is what's known as spells or different types of apnea. So they can have pauses in breathing that can be clinically significant, certainly if they're associated with falls in blood oxygen and falls in the heart rate. But currently, the medical devices don't stitch all of that together. So if we just work on the basis that, and, you know, with the other discussion about alarms today, if we just work on the basis that they all present as individual alarms, then you are going to get alarm fatigue. And it's not utilising computing to allow us to be able to find the hidden meaning. We have algorithms now that can classify depending on which happened first, which is happening together. We can classify 10 different apnea and spell behaviour. So we can say to them, this baby has now started to have an increased number of bradycardic events. Or we can say that this baby has had a series of obstructive apnea events in the last two hours. So then we're starting to give meaning. So we have to be very, very careful as we extract and have the mechanisms. We already provide the low-level data at the bedside. We provide it to the nursing staff and to the residents and fellows to keep the patients alive. But when we're trying to understand their longer-term trajectory, we can't present it at that low level anymore. And one of the things we also need to do is the clinical research to say, what are those patterns? Because some of them we still don't know that are the patterns that are associated with the onset of a hemorrhage or many of the other conditions. We're still exploring what it can mean. We have new research even around blood transfusion and the impact that that has and potentially to drive knowledge about when is a blood transfusion needed. Well, and I could see developments of patterns for uh, the risk for arrhythmia post-cardiac surgery, uh, the risk for sepsis, you know, given uh, a number of criteria. I mean, the the potential to treat individuals with big data has now become very fascinating to me. <laughs> oh, exactly. And, and these are the great opportunities that we finally, and it really only has been in the last five to 10 years, that we really have computing tools that can process this speed of data wow. on a per-patient basis. It really is that, that uh, recent because I was trying to do it at the turn of the millennium and the tools we had. The closest model we could use was the way that they load balanced water, would you believe, in ship ballasts huh. to try and have a tool and a programming platform to do what we wanted to do. Whereas now, with all the different types of sensors we have with phones and everything else, the tools have now matured and been focused on processing sensor data. 
So do you feel that the tools are still the biggest obstacle to healthcare getting a, a good handle on big data then? From my perspective, I think there's three components. I think there's having the devices, as we've mentioned, that in easily emit data for analytics, having the platform to do the analysis and having the algorithms that are clinically relevant and we are actually now progressing research across the industry on all three fronts. So I think it's a really, really exciting time. And in the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see some very dramatic changes in how we utilize the data. Andrew, have you got any perspective there from uh, the hospital's point of view, being out in the hospital? Has the data been flooding in in such a way that you've had any challenges trying to make use of it? I think from my perspective, I want to look at really sustainability. Uh, it's so easy to say, oh, this we've just made a change and we've, we've seen some success, but we really have to measure that success in a longer period of time. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, the, the ultimate solution or, or answer is, uh, if you've done something right, is if you can repeat it and sustain that change over time. Mm-hmm. With, with this data and with, with uh, quality improvement programs. Now, before we go to the last question, I know you had uh, John with you. Did, was there anything particular, um, John, that, you know, you thought? Through the course of the conversation, the maybe the... you want to add in? Yeah. Uh, I would like to say that big data, especially for those uh, uh, algorithms that apply something like uh, machine learning stuff, that will be in the the future for a lot of uh, uh, clinical data can be applied to use this kind of algorithm and pre- and generate very valuable data, even to be a predictable data for the future. Sure, sure. Yeah, predictability. I like that. I like yeah. the sound of that. We can keep a lot of keep a lot of patients out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. That that's a, a kind of idealized goal, really, to to shorten the time frame between analysis and and uh, change or effect. I think it really relates to the good data, access to the data, and then the analytics and tools and software to to make it happen. And out-of-the-box innovative thinking, really getting all this data, at least in the hospital, we really look at that multi-parameter data and getting that integration and getting not just patient data, but lab data, notes, and analyzing this stuff as a system and and collectively, you know, we, we really want to get to that point. Uh, and it doesn't look like anything that any one manufacturer makes is going to really get us there. It's really going to be innovation from re- researchers and thinkers to really get this stuff all pulled together in a very, uh, you know, innovative analytic to make it happen. Well, and I think one thing that you just said um, that I didn't think about, when I think about big data and especially the conversation that we've had today, I think about physiologic indicators, I think about symptoms, I think about things involving the the individual and their body. But you had mentioned just now um, pulling in big data from lab, from, you know, ancillary services, from things that I wouldn't have expected. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think the, the researchers around here are, are trying to get that kind of approach, you know, get Let's start in, in, in small steps, get the physiological data, get the, the laboratory data, everybody, and we're, we're coming to, you know, an integrated medical system here, database, EPIC, and, and so this is going to give us an opportunity to try and pull in a variety of different data sources 
and then the magic is going to be really in the, the analytics and computer software, and I tend to call it computer robots that are out there mining all this data, doing you know the hard work and uh, the repetition, but mm-hmm. only look, coming up with the real-time value that people want in a predictive way or short-term way. Interesting. I just thought it was interesting that it, it obviously involves more than, than just the physiologic measurements. Mm-hmm. Carolyn and Andrew, could you maybe give us your top tip that you would offer any hospital eager to make inroads in the use of big data? Well, I think you've got to start small. I think there's a lot of small victories you can get that certainly give you political capital to get more mm-hmm. uh, projects going and more expensive things going. Uh, I think we were very lucky in that we had a construction project going on where we were just rethinking our hospital and building a new hospital. Uh, and that gave us you know, a little bit of budget to get some software and get some things that, that can analyze alarms and can analyze different things and uh, you know, put it together and, and, and create value in terms of a mobile notification system. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, we're finding all, all, all sorts of applications in, in uh, workflow and, and improving patient safety using uh, this software. Um, and so that, I think that's really the, the tip I would give people is start small, but, uh, you know, look for ways to automate this whole thing because nobody has the time to, to manipulate it. And, and data comes in all different forms and formats and, and you know, protocols that the more that we can get this automation going, uh, the faster we'll get to the value. As Carolyn pointed out, taking a, uh, a laptop on a cart to the bedside to collect data, not the way to approach it. Right. Carolyn, any thoughts, uh, your top tip for uh, any hospital eager to make inroads in the use of big data? Definitely. I think one of the things that they have to decide first is are they the type of facility who will make a researching contribution or are they the type of facility that just wants to utilize what's known and enable a big data analytics solution at the bedside. If they consider that they want to contribute from a research perspective, then they need to engage the clinicians and work out problems that they want to solve with big data. And I agree entirely with starting small by picking a particular unit in the healthcare facility they want to work with, either to start some research or to set up and create a systemic environment to be able to utilise data in, in ways that other people have demonstrated. And once you do that, then it's really an idea of understanding a strategy for how you connect the data or the devices and start acquiring the data. Is the analytics going to be done in-house and how is it going to be supported? Are you going to utilise tools that are available in the cloud? and the security and privacy about it, it needs to be addressed even at the small scale with a systemic vision in mind. This is a new style of data. When I started my career in the computing industry, I was working for a bank and I had the very fortunate opportunity that I came in right at the very, very first stages of taking audit data and the very first what are now known as data warehouses were being created. It required a very new way of thinking. So having computing systems for analytics as opposed to the computing systems for the transaction processing. And I would say that this is another variant of a new type of computing infrastructure, the big data sensor-based 
infrastructure and hospitals need to think about systemically how they're going to support it, how they're going to engage clinicians, change management practices, and then you will come up with a truly successful environment. Well, we had talked about each of your top tips for uh, hospitals eager to make those inroads into the use of big data. I want to give you guys the opportunity, if you have any final thoughts as we wrap up or parting thoughts or ideas that you want to express or notions that you want to to get out there about big data for for all of our listeners. When we talk about big data, predominantly today we've been speaking about it within the building of the hospital facility. Yes. The other piece that we need to understand is that we have ambulatory patients in the home. Yes. And there is an enormous opportunity to stop them presenting in very dire situations in emergency and be able to start supporting them and detecting when things are becoming a problem in the home setting. So this isn't about presenting the physician and surgeon or specialist who looks after these ambulatory patients with constant streams of data of a patient who's managing their condition It's about utilising these infrastructures to put in process steps for those who have a changing trajectory. So when you think about strategies and projects and things you want to pilot, don't just think about for the patients who are physically inside your facility because the world is changing in that regard and there's certainly a lot more support we can provide to the ambulatory patients. Yeah, I was listening to, uh, or actually reading an article, they said, you know, inside your four walls, there's a lot of data, and that's big data. And once you go outside of uh, your four walls, it can get to the point where it's huge data. (laughs) It's amazing. That's right. If you think about your diabetic population who are ambulatory patients, and you may have a very small segment of those who are currently in a situation where their management of that is unstable, you think about how many, what percentage of your ambulatory diabetic population that is and how many you have in the community, then your analogy is exactly right. So, Andrew, any final thoughts, especially from that healthcare technology management perspective of the, the uh, HTM that's in the hospital trying to meet the needs of their clinicians and their organizations when it comes to big data? Any last thoughts for them? Well, I, I think we need to keep pressing, especially the vendors who create these great medical devices, to make sure that they pay attention to the needs for big data. Uh, I think in the end, uh, they will profit from it, uh, hospitals will profit from it, and, and our society and really the health of our, our population will profit from this data. And so we really need to have them thinking much, much bigger in, in relation to the data, and uh, I think ultimately we'll create much safer systems, much more exotic and, uh, you know, just unbelievable medical equipment, uh, and our industry will really profit collectively from it. If we can just get this stuff released from the device and uh, analyzed, uh, I think uh, there's no, no telling what we might come up with. Well, Carolyn, Andrew, and John, I want to thank you especially for uh, helping me understand how big data applies to that population management, but also drill down to uh, individual patient care. I didn't realize, and I definitely got an education today. We want to thank you for coming on to the Amy podcast and speaking with us today, and we wish you the best in your endeavors and hope to hear from you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us 
on this episode of the Amy Podcast. Uh, we hope you learned a little bit more about big data and its uses. For this episode of the Amy Podcast, I'm Terry Baker. And I'm Kelly Hill. <laughs>